Hey guys, welcome to Studio Secrets A to Z. I'm Anthony J. Resta, and we have an exciting guest here today. Um, one of the most interesting and talented uh, pro audio people you'll find anywhere. Um, I'm welcoming the wonderful Brian Lucy from Magic Garden Mastering. Welcome, Brian. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, we're, we're totally psyched to have you. Um, it's great to see you. And yeah, I see your wonderful room there. You got, you've been doing a Atmos stuff. I've been checking out some of your posts are incredible on uh, social media, just talking about all the wonderful opportunities coming uh, with Atmos and stuff like that. So there's a lot of things we can get into today. I, I thought it might be a fun place to start. Okay, great. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting arena, that's for sure. So what, what did you, you had to completely revamp your room to make that happen, or how did you do it? Um, yeah, not so much a revamp, just additions. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the idea I had was that I wanted my stereo speakers, of which you can see one behind me, I wanted that sound that I was familiar with to just be spread out in the room, you know, in, 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 in all dimensions without, um, you know, too much alteration. So I used speakers from the same company and amplifiers that were of a similar type and really good D to A converters and made the whole thing run with Trinoff, which allows me to tune the room. So I actually, I actually tuned the room to follow the curve of my left, right mains. So, so I met left, right mains and because I like them, you know, they are, they're running with no software treatment. So I measured the, the left, right mains, and then I applied that curve to all the other speakers. I mean, not the sub, but all the other speakers in the room. And that allowed a really nice, easy transition for me. That's fantastic. I mean, it's just, it's a whole huge arena and it's something I'm super interested in. And I've been trying to pick your brain a little bit about it's a, you know, for somebody who's been doing stereo like myself for three decades, it's, it's daunting to say the least. Um, but uh, one of the, the things, one of my favorite, you've made a lot of really interesting comments about it, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting was you said that a lot of times some people might have the tendency to do too much and that, that you, you don't really have to approach it like a, a Pink Floyd concert where everything is flying around and stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are kind of three pitfalls that people make and there is and there's really kind of one main advantage to atmos so i mean i guess we'll start with the positive the main advantage is that if it's done right which at, at the moment admittedly is in the minority of the releases and so i understand people's resistance but if it's done right the you know joe headphone gets a studio room experience and that is quite something like to 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 be totally real about headphones they they kind of suck you know you're you're basically 90% left right with this thing kind of at your third eye which is the center but you're not really getting a room and if and if those of us who, who are fortunate to work in rooms if you put the headphones on and off in the room you really notice that you're not you're not getting the frontal center image you're not getting a sense of room you're just you have these you know, phase coherent sounds coming in and then you have this sense of a center, but it's, it's not really a spacious thing. It's more this weird thing that we've all just accepted as perfectly normal. And so the cool thing about Atmos, um, which kind of took me a minute to come to, isn't really the speakers in a room thing, although that's amazing. Uh, that's more difficult for people to come by. It's more expensive and more cumbersome. Um, that's a great way to have a party where you have maybe a record release, or that's a great way to do 
things that are big scale. Yep. But on the normal scale of normal people with just normal earbuds and normal headphones, Amos is a better headphone because it puts you in a room where you get a center image. Oh, wow. So the center image of Atmos is the most important thing, that, that being in a room thing. So I'm not that concerned about does the headphone give you, uh, you know, back to front or does it give you ceiling speakers? I'm not that concerned about Atmos headphones perfectly representing the speaker world. I see. That's that's not to me that big of a deal. Like the technology is close, it may never exactly do it. I don't care. What I think is great about it is that on cheap headphones, you're in a room experiencing music in a room and in a in a in a degree that makes stereo headphones sound really broken and bad. Well, that's fascinating. That's really cool. That's the so that that's the positive of it. Now we have to do a lot to get there. It is very complex. There's a lot of work involved to make this better headphone. But I mean, I think after 60 years or so of stereo, it's time for a better headphone. And and, and that's what we have, uh, the possibility of that with Atmos. Again, not every product. So back to your point. Um, so the, the, the pitfalls of the format, I, I would kind of put them in three categories. The first one you alluded to is what I jokingly call music in a blender uh, <laughs> where it's kind of like the shit is just sprayed <laughs> everywhere and so the problem with music in a blender is it has no cohesion and cohesion is huge cohesion is is a is a major component of stereo so the way to think about atmos again isn't what's the most we can do because that ends up with music in a blender. Okay. Uh, the, the way to think about it is, what's the most we can do with cohesion? So, for example, if we, if we imagine back in time before we were born, when mono became stereo, you can imagine that the people who were really good at stereo right away were the people who were really good at mono because they knew how to create a good center image. And, and then they were like, oh, well, we have center image by panning things to the middle. And, you know, maybe at the time they had a, a left, right, center switcher, not a pan pot. So they were like, oh, we can move something over here. We can move it over there. That's exciting. But they kept true to the mono as they moved into stereo. And, and 60, 70 years later, we know that is important, uh, essentially important even today to make great stereo it has to have great mono qualities. The things panned down the middle carry the tune, you know, literally. And the, and the side stuff enhances what's down the middle. So if you take that principle that stereo is stretched mono, I see. now let's take it to Atmos. Atmos is stretched stereo. It's stretched stereo, which is stretched mono. So the principles of mono still apply. The principles of stereo still apply. And now we're going to stretch it out into a larger space with, at the very least, the benefit of the average person getting a headphone experience on cheap headphones that is putting them in a room. That's at so the cool. very, that's, that's... At the very, and at the, at the most, it's, it's, you know, my room or a huge room with speakers or a trade show or a Dolby theater where the music is just 
you know, this massive immersive thing. So at, at the minimum, it's this better headphone. At the maximum, it's this crazy cool speaker thing. So that's the future of it. And um, that's why after much resistance in myself and going through all the complaints that anyone might have, of which I'm totally understanding about, I came to the conclusion that this is this is super cool and it's not going away. Plus, it's not going away because Apple is committed, you know, and they if Apple's committed, they're committed, you know. Well, that's exciting. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, I have a funny story that I, I, I read about. And um, uh, Roger Nichols, who did, like, all the Steely Dan records, I'm a huge fan of Steely Dan, those incredible records. We've talked about that a few times. And he talked about when when um, Surround came out and they were starting to do 5-1 five, five mixes. He had done a version of Gaucho like that, and he was just randomly in a stereo store. And they were playing it. And the salesman made a really nasty comment about how stupid it was to have the horns coming from the other side of the room. And he said, right. and he said it really affected him. And it was like, he was like, you know, it, you have these opportunities to do something new. So you, you, but at the same time, you know, people are used to looking at a band up on a stage and there's a certain image that you have when you listen to music and sometimes disrupting that uh, too much leads to the, the blender thing, you know? Yeah. Co- cohesion. Uh, I mean, well, I kind of I, I skipped over the other two. Okay, yeah, let's pitfalls. go back to those. We go back to that, but but cohesion is number one. Like if 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 Atmos is not mixed cohesively, it's just going to fail. So that's that's like the starting point, and 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 it's the same for stereo, right? If your if your stereo mix isn't cohesive, if it isn't focused around the song, or you know yep. whatever is the it's non-vocal music you know if there isn't cohesion mixing fails mono mixing fails stereo mixing fails atmos mixing fails so cohesion is number one the other two pitfalls of the format are uh, basically a lack of harmonic distortion so in the stereo world you know we're fairly accustomed to a very evolved very distorted sound uh harmonically i don't mean necessarily like clipped or yeah you know and I don't mean ugly distorted. I mean, you know, beautiful harmonic distortion. So, you know, there's usually some two bus compression, two bus, two bus EQs, this kind of thing. Maybe it's hardware, maybe it's software that emulates that uh, kind of uh, harmonic content. Then we've got mastering where we have more harmonic content. So, you know, there's, there's two bus and mastering processing, which contribute multiple layers of harmonic content to stereo. And that's what we expect. And if it doesn't have that, it, it really kind of sounds like a demo. So if we go to Atmos, where we don't have bus processing, and we don't have stereo, you know, we don't have any bus processing, and we don't have mastering bus processing, you're really taking away a lot of those layers of harmonic distortion. So it's it tends to sound like a demo in terms of the harmonics, um, unless people are really going for it and that's part of what i'm doing here is is in my work i have you know transformer class a eqs uh at the moment i have 50 and then and and so i can put that on every object so it's not bus processing it's object processing but i'm bringing in some of that harmonic distortion then of course mixers can do that as well but there's there's something about hardware yes you know just like just like in mastering, there's something about hardware at that final step that does something that plugins can't do. So, so that's a key element to my work is I've got some really juicy, custom-made transformer class A 
real smooth kind of EQs, and I've got 50 of them, which generally covers all the objects. If it's 60, I'll throw plugins on the last 10, but those 10 aren't. That's insane. Very- wow, that's incredible. I'm able to do like a mastering grade tonal upgrade to the Atmos, which which doesn't have mixed processing, you know, and, and then doesn't have processing. So it tends to sound a bit naked in terms of the harmonics. It tends to sound like a bit like uh, early digital CDs in the 80s where it was just like uh, kind of cold and, you know, you listen back to a lot of that stuff and you're like, eh, it sounds like a demo. You know, it, it doesn't really sound finished. So, so that's number two on the list of Atmos pitfalls, um, the first being cohesion. The third one is the vocal and you know without giving away my hard-earned trade secrets let's just say that if 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 you're listening to a vocal in atmos that doesn't have cohesion and a centered singularity if the vocal does not have a singularity it puts people off right away yeah like the beauty the beauty of stereo headphones because there is no dsp there is no phase trickery going on is that the vocal in a stereo headphone has the same center image clarity as a vocal in stereo speakers now it may be like right smashed up against your nose at your third eye or what have you so it may not be a good room sound but it does have phase clarity and a real sense of a singularity of the vocal so atmos uh, with with the DSP of the binaural and the way people are doing vocals can sort of not have that singularity. And that, people won't exactly know why they don't like it, but they'll, if they compare the Atmos with a weird vocal to the stereo with a very clear vocal, th- they're turned off right away. They're going to disconnect from it because it's like if you have a, especially if you have a, say, a triple-tracked lead vocal, like a lot of pop music does where it's left, right, and center. In, in, in Atmos, it might be really easy to lose that sense of the middle, you know? Yeah, yeah. All, all of those things apply. Like, you know, again, going back to the original idea, it's not how much can you do, it's how much can you do and be cohesive. Or it's it's how little can you do with Atmos and be interesting. I mean, you can you can phrase it either way. It's not about, you know, it's like, like, Think about the effects processor, you know, that you get, uh, you know, like when your videos you might experiment and take something to crazy land, uh, the presets might take something to crazy land. But when you're actually in music, you, you tend to bring that down to make it musical and to have it to have it work. Sure. You know, it's like like the preset of the of the latest and greatest uh, Eventide H9000 or whatever. You're probably not going to use that degree of preset in your track you're going to make it cohesive and musical and it's kind of like that with with the whole opportunity of atmos like just because you can do it doesn't mean that you should you've got to stay cohesive and and you've got to have good harmonic distortion you've got to have that vocal be something that people can really latch on to are you are you able to when you get something that say has a little too much of what we'll say the blender effect or um are you able to somehow repair uh, anything? Like, are, are you able to like kind of diminish some of the the negative parts of of an Atmos mix, or do you have to just say, "Look, you know, you you got to redo this"? Yeah. So the the 
the beauty and the terror, if you will, of, of Atmos mastering is I get the full mix. I have all the tracks. Okay. So I can fuck things up pretty quickly or I can subtly enhance things in a respectful way. Got it. And so, so Atmos mastering really requires even more discretion than stereo. I mean, in stereo, like I, I can turn a cat into a pig, you know, I, I can do a lot of <laughs> with stereo, right? Easy to do. I can do that. Um, but you're, you are limited to the two track world with Atmos. You've got all the objects, you know, so if it's 15 or if it's 65, you've got the, the, the objects all printed out, you know, just coming up in a pro tool session in my case, right at zero with all the panning. Oh, wow. I can do anything to it. Right. I, yeah. I could ruin it. So I try not to do anything I don't have to do. Uh, I would, I would, I, I would say, have I ever gone in and remixed it in that sort of way? Um, no, with, with one exception of one track on one project where somebody had mixed one particular song in a way where all the objects were congested in the middle and it, it wasn't giving them good volume I see, and good punch. And so I took some stereo objects that were kind of close to the center and put them out more towards the left and right because the way that the, the Luff's integrated measurement algorithm works, you, you can, I didn't really change the mix because I, I moved things that were here to here so perceptively they were still I see. in the center but I got more I got more punch and more level and, and more presence out of the track because that was their complaint and it was it was just something they'd done being a novice and sure so that's one example and so so basically no the okay. answer is basically what I'm what I'm relying on uh, now, now I will say with vocal yes there there are things I'm doing with vocal um, that are sort of above and beyond throwing up the analog EQs and doing some digital EQ and that kind of thing. I see. Uh, with, with vocal, you know, if, if, if there is that lack of cohesion, I will do some things again, as respectfully as possible, but to make sure that the vocal comes across, uh, you know, as a central, uh, identifiable, emotionally connectable feature and also that it translates well well that's a huge responsibility like I, I i see what you do and it's like it just it's kind of baffling uh you know and it's my my hat's off to you because it's just like a crazy amount of responsibility as far as atmos mixes do you find there's any kind of like you know we i don't want to go into the volume wars thing because it's so old and everything and nobody cares anymore but with atmos do you, do you find that there there's a there's a, this need to to push the, the the limit of like how loud everything is or do you find that people are a little bit more dynamic well, Interesting, there are different levels to Atmos releases, but in a hard scientific measurable sense, minus 18 integrated LUFs is the delivery limit. So there, there is actually a dynamic limit to the format. Okay. Now, having said that, if, if you've got, you know, 20 objects and you've compressed them and treated them aggressively, you're going to get more out of your minus 18 than somebody else, you know. So the the level of things varies just organically by by the, the nature of the, the composition, the nature of the treatment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because Luffs as well is a is a 
it's an overtime integrated number in this case. So, you know, if, if, if something is really dynamic and then it builds up to the end, that end thing is going to be really powerful and loud because the, the beginning was so low that the integrated number allowed you to really slam it. Whereas if the whole thing has been processed a lot, it's all going to be loud, but it's going to sort of sit there. So there's a whole different way of thinking with level in the Atmos world, but we do know that minus 18 is the delivery spec. And that's something that we don't have in stereo. And so it, it really, that's a, that's like one of many game changers in the arena. The other being there's no bus processing and the other being that there's DSP in the headphone product. This is really, really exciting and interesting to me. And I, I really, you know, is I'm, I'm thinking of, you had mentioned that if you get logic and you get those, is it the Apple headphones? The um, Apple max with logic pro you, you can it, stream. So that'd be a good beginning point for somebody like me to just start experimenting and trying stuff. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, you can get in the format for what seven hundred bucks. Like get get the headphone, Logic Pro, and then off you go. That's really really scary. <laughs> well, the the, the 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 thing about it is, you you kind of can do no wrong if you mix that way, um, because you know if if you were to example put a kick drum in the middle of the room. In a speaker world, you know, that would sort of blow up the side speakers. And, you know, uh, theoretically, there would be bass management that would take care of it. If, if it came to me, I would take care of it differently. So I wouldn't have to rely on bass management. And that's a whole sort of in the weeds thing. But if you're just mixing with headphones, all of that gets taken care of as well with bass management and DSP. So, you know, it, it's kind of a, it's a fun free for all to just put on the headphones, bring up the tracks and and start going for it you don't have to worry too much about the things that i get into in terms of a mastering thing i see where i'm i'm trying to limit the uh i'm trying to maximize the integrity of the product and not have it be dependent on low-end management per playback or per headphone or what have you you know i see so if we just starting out like um What's the minimum amount of objects you, as you refer to them? Like, is it necessary to have your whole multi-track master in there, or could you do like, a, like, say, a half a dozen stems and get a good Atmos mix? Uh, yeah, you can you can do that. Uh, again, if you if you think of it think of it from the viewpoint of you're going for a better headphone product, it, it, then it, it changes the whole yeah. dynamic. If you stop thinking of it like, oh, I need to music in a blender it. And more thinking of it like I want to do a better headphone than stereo. I see. Then it's hey, well, how many? What, what kind of stems do we need? You know, um, and you just you can make six pair, eight pair, ten pair, and you can just do do those stems as objects. You know, some some people rely on the bed tracks, which are which are tied to the kind of seven one two yep. hypothetical setup. Some people use only the objects. Some people do a hybrid of both. I mean, there's uh, Bob Clear Mountain on the one extreme is using the objects only for things that move and for four objects to put for ceiling speakers. And he's otherwise in the beds. Uh, the, the Capitol Studios approach is is no beds at all, everything in an object. And then there's, you know, there's hybrid versions in between. So it's a, it's a, it's a wide open palette. You know, sure. You can, and do whatever works, you know. But the the principles I said in the beginning are far more important than how many objects and where sure. you're putting them. 
Wow, fantastic. This is, that's a really great great topic, and I'm really looking forward to kind of... It's like a the Wild West. I mean, it's a new frontier, and I think it's really... I think it's super cool. I mean, I, I come from the era where I saw Pink Floyd, <laughs> you know, with the with the quad. Remember the with the quad, and I when animals came out and they they had the you know the it was incredible. I mean, in a concert, hearing that stuff in a room at Boston Garden, like flying around the room. I mean, it's a wonderful thing, you know. And I I, I look forward to getting into it. The amazing, you know, beautiful, inspiring, in a room thing. It, you can kind of think of that as one thing. And then the better mousetrap headphone product is kind of a different thing. And yeah. of course they're they're the same thing, but when we when we make these things, we we have sort of a binaural product where we put in some binaural settings and all that. And 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 for that again, uh, I'll just simplify it for people because I've spent you know the last year down this rabbit hole. Uh, in the binaural world, you can go to off, which is basically not any yeah. uh, amateur. Uh, I don't recommend off. The, the the default is mid. There's near, mid, and far. The Dolby default is mid. My default would be a, a recommendation of near. Uh, if you want, if you want more space, you put it into your objects the same way we use reverb or delay or time-based effects in stereo. So if you go with near, you get the minimum amount of DSP, which is the maximum amount of believability. I see. Uh, so just setting setting everything to near except the LFE, the low end, that's default to off. But if, if everything is at near, then you just start then you can start throwing stuff up in your pans and go for it. That's a huge uh tip and we appreciate that kind of information. Like you said, you've spent a lot of time going down that. Um one of the things that I'd like to get into a little bit today is um I'd like to know more about you. I mean, I, I love your social media posts. You always have such, you know, really important topics on things are you know everything you know besides music but um how did you get in tell me a little bit about your background in music and how how it evolved into to mastering if you don't mind going back and kind of giving us a little background yeah just as quick as i can you know i started playing guitar when i was like 11 by the time i was 18 i was in new york city and i was playing full-time just kind of kind of happened that i met these guys at a open mic and then i saw them on the street and they're like hey come play with us and then it was five six nights a week of playing with them and that was playing covers that were like uh this was in the late 80s so it was sort of 60s covers up to 80s covers, everything from like talking heads to bob dylan and hendrix and it was that 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 era and 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 then i didn't want to do covers anymore you know and that after that i studied with robert fripp and guitar craft for a number of years and that was that was very serious, like, uh, you know, half an hour a day of, of sitting and doing nothing, kind of a meditating thing. And I used to practice for many hours a day with acoustic guitar, with a pick. And I was in rock bands <clears throat> at the same time. And so I, I, I was going to be a musician forever, and I was fine with that. And my notion of musicianship was never really about being popular or writing pop songs or that kind of thing although of course we always want people to like what we're doing but i I was always really into tone and so sort of what i discovered in the late mid mid 90s i started to teach myself how to engineer because i didn't like what i was paying for and by the end of the 90s i was mastering at just like oh okay i guess i'll try this now you know it was very much an organic wow sort of dabbling thing and um, I really figured out, you know, from like 98 to 2005 that that 
what I was always into most about music was what mastering was about. I, I didn't know that at yeah. the time. I didn't think twice about mastering until probably 98. Um, I was perfectly content with my musician life. But what mastering is about is everything I was about in, in making music. And so it became a very efficient and interesting challenge for me. And I very quickly got good at it because I had lots of other skills. And I'd always been focused on tone and focused on musicality and these sort of things. But I was doing different jobs. You know, I was, yeah. I was writing and recording and producing other people and, and doing multi-track tape and all this kind of stuff. So mastering kind of, I got good at it fairly quickly uh, because I was set up to do it. You know, I everything see. I had was like a setup to do it. Um, and, and I, and I got started doing it again, uh, in the, in the late nineties because I just felt frustrated. You know, if you remember 80s CDs were quite cold and clinical, not a lot of harmonic distortion, a lot of flat transfer sounds. Then in the nineties, it became this kind of volume more thing, which was very compressed with an emphasis on the mid range sounds because those, you know, give you the psychoacoustic loudness thing. Uh, but I grew up listening to vinyl, uh, you know, I'm a white kid from the suburbs, so I listened to blues, guitar players, you know, everybody from Robert Johnson up to, you know, Albert Collins and B.B. King and Buddy Guy and all that. So so I listened to all of that blues stuff on vinyl, so I wasn't getting the harmonics I liked in the 80s. And in the 90s, I wasn't getting any low-end or low-mid-range. And I, and I was just like, what the F is this? You yeah. know, I don't... I don't I don't like the way this stuff sounds, you know, That's amazing. and there, there were a few Bob Ludwig records in the late nineties that I liked. And occasionally Ted Jensen did something that I liked, but overall I just, when I, when I actually started investigating mastering for the first time, I felt like that was the bottleneck yeah. in, in, in the system. And so I wanted to, I wanted to hear the sounds that I wanted to hear, which was kind of a modernized version of vinyl. It was, uh, it was, you know, using the beautiful things that come with digital, uh, but having low end and low mid range and sort of uh, the humanism that came from, you know, 60s and 70s records that kind of got lost when CDs came out. So that's that was my impetus for doing it. And, you know, within a few years, I had the chain I have now and then I just, you know, got better over time. And and that's what you hear is that that desire for that sound that wasn't out there. Well, that that's that's fascinating to hear the you how well you put that together, and it's like this is a good time for me to interject a little bit about my experience with you, which is you know I've been doing this like I said you know people know decades, and I've worked with all some wonderful mastering engineers from you know you know I could list so many, and when the minute I heard you your work, I I there I was attracted to that. There's there's this I well I some I call it the good mud, but. <laughs> It's like it's the it's like the, a lot of stuff that a lot of people suck out of the music. I mean, and and I don't it, I know there's different generations. Uh, people things go in and out of style. How records sound like you know in the '80s things were really bright and you know there, but there's some wonderful records like you know Peter Gabriel's So I mean that record just blows my mind. But it doesn't sound like anything now. But without getting into all that, there was a signature thing that happened when I heard music that I had worked on coming back from you that just, it it was like just such a good feeling. Like, man, I, this is what I've been 
missing. So, you know, I think that's why one of the reasons why you've been so successful is that uh, a you were a musician. You 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 know so your whole path set you up to be a pleaser of the uh, Sonics in a big way. And it's just I'm you know I'm I'm just blown away, and I'm I just love you to death. You know. So well, I, I, uh, yeah, I mean. Like I said, what I everything I did before I was mastering was kind of a setup, and and I I realized you know in the early two thousands as I was sort of getting better at it, and and sort of realizing it was more my thing, uh, and I and I stopped basically stopped playing music, stopped writing music, stopped being part of that part of the process. Um, you know what I realized was there was just a sound idea that I had that was that was kind of something I'd been feeling or thinking about for decades and i just wasn't hearing it and i and i wanted to hear it you know and and so that's kind of what i do now now of course you know i, I work with all sorts of people so there are revisions and it's it's a collaborative process and it's you know to me like you know we we are a test market so if someone's like oh i want it to be this or that of course i revise that i'm a service provider but but as long as i'm happy and they're happy it still stays in this world of like what i wasn't hearing that existed before I started working. I just felt like there was, you know, and, and it comes back to mindset. You know, a lot of people in mastering, it has to be said, have a perfectionistic mindset or a conservative mindset where they're sort of like just happy to be there. You know, like, thanks for including me and I'm just going to like nip and tuck and kind of stay out of the way. And in principle, you know, I just don't believe that that is a real thing like like i love steve albini but I, I think that his concept is is not real that the engineer or the producer or whatever name you want to have or in this case the mastering engineer can be invisible in the process i don't think that anybody who touches a record is invisible certainly not the last person that touches the <laughs> record yeah like that that seems really crazy to me and that's where you know sort of robotic mastering kind of fails is that you get the energy of an algorithm. Um, and, and, and so if we look at skipping the algorithms, if we go to the humans, what I have going on that's different is, is like, I'm a rock guitar player, singer. Like I have a, a high degree of don't give a fuck. Yeah. So I have, I have a high <laughs> of like, of, you know, like a couple times that I've failed in the last decade to please people right away. were actually examples where I was too conservative. Like, like when I did, I did a track for um, Tom Wally, who was the head of Warner Brothers for a decade, and now he has Loma Vista. And I did, um, he contacted me after I'd done Black Keys, and he was involved with that at the time. And he had a Marilyn Manson record, which became the record called uh, The Pale Emperor, which is a record I'm really proud of. I think it's a, a really unusual Manson record. It's mid-tempo, it's organic. It was written uh, with Tyler Bates, a film a music maker and the two of them together made this record. It's something I'm very proud of. I think it really stands out as a unique feature of his catalog. But anyway, Tom Wally said to me, you know, I, I want to hear what you do on this track. And he paid me to do a track. And I was, I was a bit conservative with it. Um, and, you know, he came back and said, well, you know what? I, I like it, but what I really wanted, and this will sound silly, but this is the world I live in. People give me silly sounding notes. He said, I wanted, you know, like a, a Def Leppard vocal with a hip hop low end. And I immediately knew what he wanted because that's actually what I wanted to do. But I was conservative with it. 
you know, so that was 2014, I think. I was eight years ago. That was the last time that I gave a fuck what I was given, <laughs> who it was, who mixed it. You know, I, I just, I, I, I care, but I don't care enough to not do what people hire me to do. You know, people hire me to bring this thing that I think is important to the work. And so I'm very fortunate that, you know, I didn't, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, how do I get in the music business? I'm like, well, try not to be in the music business. That's how you get in it. Like I developed, <laughs> I developed this thing that I thought was important, not needing the money. Right. And, and then people were like, Oh, I like that. I'll pay you for that. So, so doing that thing that people like me to do, and of course, revisions and, and being sensitive and, and, and all that collaborative all the time, but basically first pass out of the gate, just do the thing that I think is what it needs to happen is what I think needs to happen. That's what people like me to do. And so it's a fortunate position because I did evolve sort of an ear for something different. Um, when I was thinking I would not make money and make a living and be part of the music business as I, you know, as I have it, 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 it's, it, and that's what I recommend to people is like, you know, develop something of interest and something that's novel and something of musical value, and people will hear that. You know? This this is some of the great advice that you give about to artists in in your your social media and stuff about you know having you know taking chances, you know being true to 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 your inner voice. And like this is one thing that I've noticed is like if you scroll endlessly on TikTok or Instagram, and like you listen to like you know fifty hip hop things in a row, and they're all going da 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 da. Da -da, da -da. I mean, it's like these trends that take over with sounds and styles. It, it, it really takes away people's chance to stand out. And what I always say to people is like, why do you want to blend in? You know, like I came from an era where artists had personalities, you know, like it, it, everything from their clothes to the to, to the sounds on the, of their records. And I feel like a lot of that has disappeared. And I like and I'm starting to feel like there's more artists really starting to like, you know what, I'm just going to do what I want to do and take a chance and, and actually stand out instead of blending in. And I think that's an exciting time for music. And I've, I think it's one of the reasons I've been busy is because I've always been very kind of, I, I don't I hate to use the word experimental, but I mean, I like to keep things accessible, but I also like to make people go, Ooh, what was that? You know? So I think it's, you know, right. well, yeah, I mean, the, there's a whole, there's a whole lot in that. I think the, the era that we're in, and have been in for, you know, 20 years now. Um, it's very easy to make mediocre, acceptable, professional music. It, it's, it's pretty easy to do. Um, and so of course, you know, just human nature, that's going to be the first phase of this sort of computer hybrid creation era. It's like, Oh, I can, I can make, I can make songs that sound like songs, you know? Um, whereas if you're having musicians in a room and, and that, that, that was harder, it was harder to do organic recording musicians in a room. It was harder to, to do that. And now it's very easy, but it's easy to do it only up to a point where it's kind of average or maybe slightly above average. Being exceptional is just as hard now as it ever was. Absolutely. And, and being exceptional requires the same things now that it ever did and and probably uh, will always require the same things and and you know so it, it becomes a question of what's that cocktail of exceptional music and you know from my observation of it you know from my you know perspective because i get 
I don't know, 2,500 songs a year or something through here. And I get to see the, the, the path of how these things connect with the world and who does well and, and where does it go and all of that. So, you know, I've been, been able to see patterns and become kind of predictive about it. You know, the, there's just a few things that always work. The, the first thing is authenticity, which is what you're saying, which is like sort of a uniqueness. Um, if it's easy in this era to make mediocre or slightly above average music, if that's fairly easy, well, then you've got to do better than that. So where are the arenas you do better? You do better with authenticity. Um, you do better with musical values, which is like, you know, stuff about uh, compositional arrangement things, stuff about creating space, stuff about the, the blend between the familiar and the fresh, you know, these things that make things popular which is like it's it's familiar and then there's freshness and there's a there's a cocktail there yeah and and these kind of things are the principles behind great music always whether it be now the 80s the the 40s it it was always these things you know it's just the air and um it's it's it seems like there are a lot of people who are comfortable with what i would consider commercial music like just you know stuff that's able to fit in right so fitting like one category and if that's what you're into i'm all for that you know if 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 you're a person who wants to make a kind of commercial product that fits in that isn't that is a lane right but there's this other lane of doing original artistry kind of greatness oriented music and so that that lane has these other these yeah. other needs yeah. and the same and the same needs across every era i think yeah, I think you're right. I think you know it's it's easy to go down that that path of saying, "Oh, everything sucks now," and da da da. It's like you know, you know, like people my age tend to do that. And there's certain people that rant on the internet of constantly about it. But I think the, the opposite is true. I think there's an incredible volume of amazing music being made. It's just harder to find because of the yeah, amount. I, you know. I I agree. I agree. I agree. I, I, there there was a shift maybe in the '90s kind of the evolution of young people where, you know, song structure became more of a uh, important feature just in the fabric of how people think about it. And then when social media came in, there became the marketability of marketability of things that became kind of inherent in the fabric. So, so if, you know, if you combine song structure with marketability, that's, that's where you get towards like a average above average as a baseline. That's pretty straightforward, but the marketability thing can be an inhibiting factor right. on being special. And, and that's kind of like where we're at now in terms of the evolution of it is like, okay, well we've, we've established that we can do, you know, marketable, decent songs and marketable, decent production. So, so now it's kind of an interesting time because, there's more and more momentum towards the things that that you and I have always thought were interesting, which were the braver, more interest, more uh, you know, unique. Yes. Uh, still, still marketable and still structured in a way that's like you know, good, good pop structure or what, whatever that means, you know. Yeah. But but it that that is kind of the challenge now because we've had ten or twenty years of of doing it this other way, and it's like it's like the inevitable challenge. Yeah. You know? So there is a lot of really cool stuff, you know, and then there is, there's a million songs a day or whatever the number is. I, I don't know what it is now, but there's, there is a lot of stuff that's quite 
sufficient but not particularly special but but like you're saying there is a lot of really cool things because the computer again you know if we get cohesion and we get authenticity computer oriented music allows just human creativity to kick in on a whole other level it really does yeah than than having to play everything you know yeah it's it's and seeing what these you know, technology-wise, the evolution of, like, the human mind, it's like, you know, I just, there was a, a, a flautist that I ran into today. I, I, I put flute on something last night on a session, and, you know, kind of in a bad Ian Anderson kind of way, and I used the hashtag flute, and then this virtuoso flautist from, from Paris, uh, you know, sent me a message, and I, and I, I went to her page, and she's like, she's whipping off every Charlie Parker solo <laughs> that you've ever heard, and it's like, in tune and the phrasing is perfect i'm like this is like evolution nobody that age could play like that when i was a kid i mean i'm serious right. so there's something yeah. going on just in the evolution of the human mind in, in, yeah. it, that, that is, is taking things to incredible heights i get goosebumps thinking about it you know and i work with young people that, that they push boundaries and they they do things like oh my god that's crazy what did you do there you know entire genres of music have come out of you know turning a uh, you know, making a sample smaller and smaller and smaller until it goes, you know, and then you had dubstep, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's just right. incredible what the human mind is capable of. And I find it, you know, super fascinating. And I, and I, I really learn a lot from young people, you know? Yes. Well, and you have a, you have a talented young person in your, in your personal world as well. So, yep. yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there is an evolution going on and I think there always has been. And I think it's, it is a, a good time. It is an interesting time. Um, and, and, and like you said, it's a great time to be a little more brave and a little more bold. Um, you know, why not? Yeah. You know, what's, what, you know, I've, what's, I've, I've, I've had, I'm having so much fun doing this and it, we're kind of come, come to the end of this one, but I would love to do a part two at some point when you're ready. Cause there's so many things on my list I didn't even get to. And there's so much about you that I, I still want to learn. So maybe we could do a part two at some time if you, if you, if it's convenient. Sure thing. I, I'm I'm here every day. All right, you let man. Me know. Yeah, it's great to have you, man. And I really enjoyed this so much. And I, like, I've got like a bunch more questions I got to save for next time. We have to do another one. All right. Well, we'll do it again then. Awesome, Brian. Thank you so much. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 